I literally did not know if I was going to make this episode. <laughs> These episodes we're recording right now because literally around 12, I just turned into a cold monster. All of a sudden. Like I was just sneezing. I would have a runny nose. It's really gross. There were but, lots of, of difficulties yeah. in our day. I had hiccups for an hour. <laughs> but literally, I was messaging Leah. I'm like, I don't know if I'm going to make it, Leah. We may have to reschedule. She's like, no, I'm not going to be here next week. You better suck it up. I had no sympathy. And I think my body, because now I'm not sneezing, I think my body was like, oh, damn, she's serious. <laughs> <laughs> and just toughened itself up. As someone once said, she's small, but she's intimidating. <laughs> All right, here's my question. Leah. Yes. Who is your favorite artist you've been listening to recently that you just discovered? I love how you phrase that, so I can't answer the struts. Correct. Um, Let's see. I've actually been on, like, a new artist kick recently. But I'm going to say Andrew McMahon in the Wilderness which is an artist, not a band, even though he named himself in the wilderness. But do you remember the band Jack's Mannequin? I do. So their lead singer is Andrew McMahon. Right. So he was in a group before Jack's Mannequin called Something Corporate. Right. That's right. So then then that disbanded because they were like, it was the end of an era. Yeah. They did their thing. Like, it was time. So they did Jack's Mannequin. And then, like, the day... This is totally... Not related to anything, but I feel like I need to tell the story now. Uh, the day that Jack's Mannequin's first album dropped, Andrew McMahon was diagnosed with leukemia. So, like, oh man, he went through all this treatment while he's trying to build up this band. And, like, Jack's Mannequin got, they got pretty far off the ground. They were never, like, super famous or whatever. Yeah. But he ended up, like, getting a bone marrow donation from his sister who's in remission and all that stuff. But obviously, Jack's Mannequin didn't last forever so he went solo now he's Andrew man in the wilderness and he's fantastic i just he's just got this like nice relaxing sound and his i just really like his style it's very unique and he's a cool story he donates a lot of money to cancer research he does like a he has a song called dear jack that he wrote when he got diagnosed and he hosts a dear jack benefit every year and gives all that money to cancer research that's so nice which I'm going to guess is in stark contrast to whatever your answer to this yes. is going to be. <laughs> Very stark. <laughs> so lately, I've been listening to a rising star, if you will, called Poppy. I know. You shake your head because I know. That beer is real sour. Oh, yeah. That's been sitting a while. Yep. My, my previous episode was pretty long. <laughs> I... Like, I like her as an artist because she's really fascinating to me because of the mix that she's developing. So if you see her, you would think, hey, she's just, she's in Los Angeles. She has blonde hair. You're going to put two and two stereotypes together. But she has this, like, first electro pop with Mm -hmm. a kind of very, I don't want to use this in, like, a derogatory way, but, like, kind of a girlyish voice. Like She looks like an anime character. Yes, Yes, with a very, like, kind of anime bubbly voice, the singing voice. And that really did not mean that a derogatory way. Like, just kind of the only words I can think of to describe it. But then <laughs> these metal breakdowns with this awesome K-pop bubbly voice. And it's, I think it's a very interesting mix. She's actually coming out with an album called I Disagree in January. 
And our first single is coming out tomorrow, which we're recording oh. us on October 3rd. So it'll be out October 4th. I'm very excited. It'll probably show up in my Discover Weekly this week. Probably. I listened to her that one time. Oh, yep. Anyway, I'm Leah. I'm Bethan. And this is Shiwarakio. I was a little bit tired when yeah. I did that one. We have no reviews to read this week. That's sad. Insert some sad music here. Please send us in some reviews. We're missing a whole segment. Do you have anything you want to share at the beginning of this episode? No, I can't think of anything. Beth Ann is brain dead from the Led Zeppelin episode. Because we had a literally just crazy experience recording that. You need to, If you haven't listened to that episode, just go back. Go back and listen to it. Because we literally had... A very weird incident that happened. So just just go listen. Yeah. This week, doing we're not doing we're not going down to the occult this time because ooh you talking about Buddy Holly. <laughs> I kept thinking about that at my desk today and just laughing to myself. I heard a little snickering and I didn't know if you were looking at a meme or no, nope, I was doing. thinking about that joke in advance. So yeah, we're talking about Buddy Holly, the artist, not the Weezer song. I'm very excited for this because I don't know as much about Buddy Holly as I should. I, the limited knowledge that I had was from a play I saw a lot, like last year. We'll get to that later. But the reason that you probably don't know a lot about him is he had a very short career we talked one, I don't know if it was on the podcast or off the podcast, about one time about how he was the first 27er. No, he didn't even make it that long. He died at 22. Also, if you don't know that, have you been living under a rock? I feel like that's not a spoiler for how this episode ends. So let's let's just get into the life of our, our, our buddy, Buddy here. So he was not, his name is not actually Buddy. His name is Charles Harden Holly, spelled H-O-L-L-E-Y. Read it again. Charles Harden Holly. Okay. Okay. Now I'm tracking with you. Yes. H-O-L-L-E-Y. He's born September 7th, 1936 in Lubbock, Texas nice. during the Great Depression. He's the fourth child in the family. So, you know, he's not getting a lot of attention. Uh, <laughs> yeah. That was cruel. That was cruel. It's true, though. Uh, Great Depression, you're the fourth child. Like, you might as well not even exist. (laughs) He has two older brothers named Larry and Travis, and an older sister named Patricia Lou. And they're a very musical family. Everyone in the family, except the dad, could play or sing guitar. They played multiple instruments. Uh, They were, I don't want to call them a family band, because they didn't, like, tour or anything but they they had good jam sessions yeah they, they improv together sat yeah. around the fire played some guitar yeah the older two brothers larry and travis did perform in local talent shows together <laughs> they tell this one story in this video that i watched where buddy was probably like five or six and he like each of them kind of had their instrument one played guitar one played piano yeah uh buddy's was the violin when he was little And so he wanted to join Larry and Travis in this this contest, 
But Larry and Travis didn't want to play because he wasn't good because he was six. <gasps> but they wanted him to be there because he was cute. So they greased his guitar strings or his violin strings so they wouldn't make any noise. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and let him just stand up there and pretend to play oh. while they were playing their guitars. Uh, they won. Because <laughs> it, that's... <laughs> It's both cruel and genius at the same time. It is. I mean, he's the youngest sibling. They're going to yeah. pick on him. No one wants their six-year-old cousin to play with them as much as they beg. Their brother. It's like, oh yeah, brother. It's like the equivalent of today when you have your six-year-old niece that wants to play video games, but you don't want them to mess up the game that you're playing, so you give them a controller that doesn't work. They don't know that. Yeah, they don't he, need to know. He didn't, obviously didn't realize that his violin was They just want to be included. So... He played violin, and then for a while he took piano lessons until the age of 11, when he decided he wanted to be like his big brother Travis and play guitar, which is super cute. So his parents buy him a steel guitar from a pawn shop, and he very quickly does not like it. He wants to play the guitar like Travis has. So the two older brothers end up fighting and being drafted into the armed forces during World War I, and Travis, being the good older brother he is, buys an acoustic guitar off of some guy on the ship and brings it home for Buddy. Is for it World War One or World War Two? Two. Not, not one. That's okay. Two. I jumped ahead in my notes, so I also don't know where I am right now. Oh, that's okay. So while he's, you know, he can play three instruments at this point. Dude's like 12. Uh, so he, living in Texas in the 1930s, was obviously influenced not by blues music in the way that everyone else is, He's influenced by country music. Yeah. And the music of Hank Williams, Jimmy mm-hmm. Rogers, Hank Snow, Bob Wills, the Carter family. Also, his family was very religious. They're in Texas. So goes to church every Sunday, classic hymns, those yeah. kinds of things. Which is very interesting. Oh, yeah. That's big. Like, well, because my in-laws are from Texas. But, like, that's huge out there. The Hank Williams, like, that whole genre yeah. It's just everyone everyone was listening to that. So that's that's what he grew up in. Like, I mean, obviously there was no rock and in Texas you're not gonna be listening to blues because blues was primarily played by black musicians and we're technically in the South. So in elementary school, he makes best friends with a little guy named Bob Montgomery, which is very country. And then the two of them would play together. I don't know why I'm talking to the floor. That might be part of the problem. Oh, yeah, that just improved it by miles. Okay. Should I start over? No. Okay. So in elementary school, he bonds with Bob, and they play together. They listen to radio programs like the Grand Ole Opry, Mm -hmm. the Big D Jamboree. They're just listening to their heroes on the radio all the time. So the two of them make a little band, and they start playing live gigs under the name Buddy and Bob. Oh! Uh, so they, they draw pretty much all their influence from the, the country and gospel music that they're listening to on the radio, but they throw in a little bit of blues. I don't know where they're finding blues music in 1930s Texas, but somehow they found it. They're sneaking it in. Probably. And Buddy just loves music. He wants to do it with his life. He does not want to go do what his brothers did and go in the army. He just wants to play music. Buddy graduates from high school in 1955 decides to pursue music full-time. But this time, he's only singing country music because he's he's from Texas. It's what he knows. It's what he's been doing his entire life. But this changes one night when he sees Elvis play live in Lubbock. 
Elvis has changed in everyone's life at this point. Buddy is no exception. This may have been one of his first exposures to rock and roll because we all know rock and roll did not catch on quick because of conservative America. Right. But especially in Lubbock, it did not. There was an interview type podcasty thing that I listened to where they interviewed some of his old classmates and they would talk about how there were preachers in town who would go around and collect up all the vinyl records they could find that were, you know, Elvis or, you know, two bluesy blues and they would smash them with a hammer or run over them with a car. That's messed up, man. It's the devil's music. No, no, no. That's, that's messed up. Yeah. So to get away from this, the teens would just drive a car out in the middle of a cotton field with as many people as they could put in there and just turn the radio up on full blast and have a dance party away from their parents and the preacher. And there's plenty of fields to do that in Texas. You have the space. You can go very unnoticed. Yes. Uh, So Buddy starts to experiment with, with rock and roll music at this time, heavily influenced by Elvis, but... You know, Elvis didn't get the best reception because he was seen as very sexual because he thrust his hips. Lord forbid. The thought, the nerve. Uh, So the first couple of times that Buddy plays rock and roll music, it's for his classmates. Like, they're all just still hanging around Lubbock. They've graduated, but they all have jobs or, or doing whatever. And one of them remembers thinking, oh, goodness, that's not very good music. Oh, no. She didn't think he was going to make it very far. Oh. And the way she said it, because, I mean, they're interviewing her when she's, like, 80. It's adorable. Oh. She was just like, I didn't think he was going to make it very far, but look at him. So he starts to play gigs with his new rock and roll sound. This lady's not having it, but someone was having it, because he gets a manager, and he starts booking him pretty good gigs. Some of them are opening for Elvis, casual, and... He gets him the most important date of his career, opening for Buddy Haley and the Comets. Nice. And he gets that date because he hears that a talent scout from Decca Records is going to be there. And lo and behold, he gets signed to Decca Records. And he gets signed in February 1956. And he just graduated spring, summer 1955. So he's doing pretty good. Yeah. However, in this contract... Decca misspells Holly's last name. Remember, it's H-O-L-L-E-Y as H-O-L-L-Y. And the infamous name, Buddy Holly, was born completely by accident. It's for the better. It's a typo. So he records with Decca for a while, but he does not like that they don't give him control over his own music. He's used to calling his shots. He's also 19 at this point. Uh, So he wants to do what he wants to do. They record some stuff. I don't think it's ever released There was no mention of it ever really being released, probably because they fought all the time. And in 1957, Decca said that they're not renewing his contract, but he also can't take the songs he recorded with them elsewhere and record them again. That's stupid. So, loophole. He can't record them as Buddy Holly, but he can record them with a band. Oh. So he leaves, makes his own band with, I don't know, he just finds some dudes. They change so much, I'm not even going to attempt to name them. And they record a demo of That'll Be the Day, which he'd been working on in Nashville with Decca, but I don't think he ever really finished it. Oh, no, this is where the loophole comes in. Sorry. He'd been playing with it, recording it with Decca, 
And but here they let him play his own lead guitar, which he had not been able to do at Decca. They like hired someone to come play for uh-huh. him, which is dumb. And he was finally happy with how it sounded for the first time. He working on the song for like two years at this point. Wow. But because of that Decca contract, he can't release it under his own name, as I said. So he decides to name the three of them Buddy Holly and the Crickets. And Brunswick Records heard this demo. They loved it so much, they just released the demo without ever doing a re-recording. They were like, this is it. This is the song. It saves them money. Yeah. So then some legal stuff happens. I didn't understand it. I'm not going to pretend to understand it. But Buddy's cleared to record songs both by himself and with the crickets. So he breaks free. It happens pretty quickly. So That'll Be the Day is finally, finally released as a single on May 27th, 1957, and gets noticed pretty quickly on the R&B charts. Fun fact about this song, it comes from a John Wayne movie called The Searchers. Oh, okay, I know that film. And so Buddy and his friend went to go see this movie. They paid a whopping 65 cents each to go That's see it. That's big money. And in the movie, John Wayne, whenever he gets mad about something, mm-hmm. he goes, that'll be the day. And Buddy and this other guy just really liked it, so they wrote a song about it. I could see that. I could see that sticking. And so they go on a mini tour with this, just pretty much this song and some other ones that they've written, which get them a spot on a little show called American Bandstand with Dick Clark. <laughs> no, just, you know, some little show. Some just casual. And pretty quickly they start to drop songs. So in September, they release Peggy Sue and Every Day. Three days after they release those two, that'll be the day hits number one. So his career is moving super fast. Yeah. And here we're going to pause and talk about who was Peggy Sue, this woman. This is a great question. This woman who lives in infamy. So Peggy Sue was a real person. I don't know her last name. We'll protect her privacy because I'm pretty sure the article I read did not mention her last name. And... She, at the time the song was written, was dating Buddy Holly's drummer, Jerry Allison. And so Buddy and Jerry and Peggy and Buddy's girlfriend, who's not named, all went on like double dates. Mm -hmm. And so because she's dating the drummer, she's hanging around in the studio a lot. And the working title of this song was going to be dedicated to Buddy's niece, Cindy Lou. But it didn't quite work with the song. Yeah. And one day, Peggy Sue is just hanging around the studio, and they try her name in the song, and voila, huh. it worked. I thought this was going to go to Love Triangle. Nope. But nope. Her name just fit in the song better. Sorry, Cindy Lou. Sorry, niece. She actually was very famous in Lubbock for a very long time. She recently, I want to say last year, just passed away. Oh, okay. Uh, but she was, that was her claim to fame. She was Peggy Sue, and she just... That Buddy Holly wrote Adored about. Buddy and his band. Aww. And it was super cute. That December, Buddy Holly and the Crickets go on another tiny show, Ed Sullivan. Oh, no. That's, never heard of it. And play Peggy Sue and Every Day. And then things just explode. Yeah. The minute you play Ed Sullivan. It's all over. Things, yeah. Game over. That was probably the, the... That American Bandstand would have been the first time that people actually saw Buddy. They, they heard him on the radio... So let's let's talk a little bit about his style and what makes him unique. So we have Elvis over here, who's like thrusting his pelvis in everyone's face, yeah, and being a big sex icon. And he got little nerdy buddy Holly, <laughs> and he's adorable. Uh, he's he's the cutest little thing. He his signature style is his trademark vocal hiccups and stuttering sound, which is 
Just super cute. He's carrying his signature guitar, which is a Fender Stratocaster, which he chose literally just because it was loud. Oh. That's it. That was his deciding thing. He actually owned several of these in his career. That first one that appeared on Ed Sullivan got stolen shortly after. That's sad. Who knows where it is now. That'd be a great conspiracy episode. Some fun facts about Buddy's guitar playing, which I never know, knew until this. So Buddy played the guitar, quote unquote, wrong. So, you know, normally you play down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. Yeah. Buddy only plays downstrokes, but he plays at twice the speed, which is why. So he has to play twice as fast, but it gives Buddy Holly and the Crickets a unique rhythm lead to where normally the bass would be carrying the rhythm, right? Yeah. So he's not lead guitar. He's not rhythm guitar. He's both. Huh. But there's also a backup basis. It's very interesting. I want to go back and listen to that. That's interesting. Yeah. So, but that's what gives the band the unique sound because he's hitting that that bass chord first yeah, every time. And that's why a lot of people can't play his songs because they're, they want to do that down, up, down, up, down, up, down, up. But you have to do down, you down. You have to do down, down, down. I don't even know how you like mechanically do that because it's down down yeah it's just really fast down 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 that's crazy so because so people who are trained in playing guitar can't replicate buddy's style because you have to play wrong yeah to play it right yeah fun fact at the beginning of the career his career like when he first got signed he and his band wore business suits oh yeah which is the cutest thing uh but eventually he buddy got really really close to the everett brothers and they were really influential in helping Buddy define his style. They get a lot cooler suits that aren't just like, you know, madman suits. Yeah. They're like tailored suits. They're still wearing suits, but it's the 50s. We'll forgive them. Mm-hmm. The Everett brothers are the ones who convinced him to replace his horn-rimmed glasses with the now signature Buddy Holly glasses. Yeah. Which came from an optometrist in Lubbock. They were imported from Texas. They were like, no one had ever seen glasses like this at this point. Mm-hmm. Like, they were... Crazy. The square ones? Just the the black plastic ones. Really? No yeah. one's ever seen those before. Yeah, because they're all horn-rimmed at that point. I mean, you would think like that'd be whenever the first glasses came out, that was the style. It no. Was just, here's a black pair of glasses. Well, black plastic rims. wasn't a big thing. That's true. So. That's interesting. It's Buddy. I mean, that's the hipster glasses yeah. still to still this today. day. Uh, so now that we know what Buddy looks like, if you didn't know, let's talk about his career some more. So in 1958, he starts an international tour, starts in the UK, where he plays 50 shows in 25 days. Oh my God, that's two shows a day. Yeah, I don't know how. That same month, Buddy's solo album, because he's allowed to release music by himself now, called Buddy Holly debuted. As soon as that tour wraps, he comes back to the US and plays another 41 shows, like almost the same speed. Holy cow. That's what happens when you're young. Yeah, I mean, he's 20. At this point. Around this time, he meets Maria Elena Santiago and asks her out. He met her. He was in some music studio. I don't know if it's a studio, company. He went to a meeting and she was a secretary. Mm -hmm. And he met her. They got married. He meets her in February. They get married in August. That's quick. His manager didn't like that Buddy was married because it was distracting to the female fans. So they had to lie about their marriage. Oh, for the rest of the tour and say that he was 
she was his assistant, which is, we're not even going to unpack that. Ugh. He and Maria Elena loved to visit. They lived in New York City for pretty much their entire married life and were often just spotted hanging out in all the different music venues they would explore, like Harlem and mm-hmm. pretty much everything. Because Buddy lived his life very fast, I think almost on purpose. We'll get into that later. Yeah. But he just wanted to take in as much different music as he could. That same year, he gets Buddy gets really, really interested in music producing. So he returns to Lubbock to hang out with a DJ named Waylon Jennings. Waylon! My buddy! A little unknown DJ. He helps Waylon record and produce his first two singles. Really? Oh, Waylon's gonna keep... I didn't know that. Yeah, he's credited with discovering Waylon Jennings. Dude, that's crazy. This is only the tip of the iceberg. But that makes sense, because Waylon's in that Texas area. Yeah, they're they're both from Lubbock. Okay. That's crazy. So once he's done there, he goes back to New York and gets really into... Acoustic songs? Okay. And this is where things start to get, I don't want to say weird, but weird. Mm-hmm. So he's in his apartment alone in New York City. And he records six acoustic songs, including Crying, Hope, and Waiting, and What to Do, which are the last six songs he ever records. Oh, man. And if you listen to them, they are so different from his other like other bodies of work. The others are very, you know, come on guys, like yeah. Peggy Sue's pop, like happy and every day is happy. And these are, they're, they've got the crickets in them. They've got multi-instruments. This is just Buddy and a guitar alone in his apartment. They are considered some of the most angst-ridden songs in the entire canon of rock. But no one knows why. Like, he wasn't. It wasn't like he was depressed. No, he was at the top of his game. He's hanging out at on the New York music city, New York City music scene every night. He and his wife are doing things like he's helping other people. Like Did, lots of people around him all the time. And he's, yeah, he's not depressed. Like nothing really says that he's depressed. Did his wife say anything? She doesn't know either. I don't know if I don't know if she was there when these were recorded, okay. like in the apartment, or if she was like out. I don't know. One of the songs on what they call the apartment tapes, these six songs, is called Peggy Sue Got Married, which is the follow-up to Peggy Sue, and it talks about, like, a lost love and these kind of things, but no one really knows who it's about. It's theorized that it's about the actual Peggy Sue, because she ended up marrying that drummer and, like, moving on. So, So here are some theories. The theories behind these songs. His cash flow was becoming a problem. He had to just fire his manager. The reason's really not that important. But Buddy was not good at managing his finances. Yeah. Well, he's living in New York City. At 20 years old. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's 21 at, this, 21 at this point, maybe. So, yeah. He does not know what he's doing. No. He absolutely does not. He's also trying to produce everyone he meets. And that takes money. Yeah. Which he does not have. His one-year marriage was already on the rocks. That's not, not like horrible, but I mean, they got married. He literally proposed on their second date. Yeah, so they don't know each other. And then all, the other theory is he's married to Maria Elena, but he's still pining after his high school girlfriend, Echo McGuire, who dumped him very shortly after he started getting up in the music scene because she decided that rock and roll was not rock and roll life was not for her. Yeah. Which is a valid reason. 
It's yeah. not for everybody. Sure. But this is where things just get weird. Like, no one knows why these are recorded. That's strange. And they're not released at, while a, he's alive. Okay. I was about to say. They, they've been released. They are now released, but they're not. They weren't at the, when he was alive. They just were, I don't know if they're a personal project. No one knows because he dies. So, after these apartment tapes are done, Buddy and Maria go back to Lubbock because they spend all their time either in New York City or in Lubbock mm-hmm. to spend some time with his family before Christmas and before starting his winter dance party tour. But the thing is, he needs a band for this winter dance party tour because the crickets are no longer really a thing. They're not coming on this tour. Yeah. A few of them are. I don't know. So he hits up Waylon Jennings and asks him to play bass on this tour. Really? So he joins. And this tour is kind of a disaster for many reasons, but some idiot planned a tour through the Midwest in January and February. Yeah, that's not a good idea. No, not in 1958. They start in Milwaukee, Wisconsin on January 23rd. And also whoever planned this, on top of not factoring in the weather, didn't like follow a logical route. So they'll be on the east side of the state one night and the west side the next night, and then they got to go back to the east side. Are you serious? Yes. That's... Dumb. And they're doing this in unheated school buses. Not tour buses, oh, school buses. This is horrible. The buses would break down. They broke down twice in just a f- few short weeks of this tour just because it was cold. Like, it was literally so cold the engine would not work. Yeah. And one night the drummer actually got frostbite on his toes <gasps> because just the bus was so cold he couldn't get warm. Oh, my God. So Buddy starts chartering plans to get around because he is not about that life. Yeah. he's And then and plans, I think, were not cheap, so it's not helping his cash flow problem. But So on February 2nd, this is literally week two, maybe the end of, yeah, the midweek two of this tour. Starts on January 23rd, February 2nd. They're leaving Clear Lake, Iowa and going to Mason City, Iowa. So Buddy charters a plane because he's not about that cold, that cold life. It's going to be himself, Waylon Jennings, and then they can fit two others. So one of the guys literally flips a coin with Richie Valens for the seat, which Richie Valens won. And then Waylon Jennings gives up his seat to J.P. Richardson, a.k.a. the Big Bopper. Hold on. Is this the plane? This is the plane. And Waylon Jennings was freaking going to be on it? He gave up his seat to the Big Bopper. Holy cow! Because the Big Bopper had the flu... And complained that the tour bus was too cold and uncomfortable for a man his size. We almost lost Waylon Jennings. We, we very well almost did. Like, literally one of the best artists. Yes. We almost lost him. He was supposed to be on that plane. Like, Buddy handpicked him to be on that plane ride. Oh, my. Yeah. God. So, the pilot was not certified to fly by instrument only. He was only cleared to fly in full visibility. So what do they do? Take off in the snowstorm. He he can't see. Like, the pilot cannot see. So they take off around 12.55 a.m. on February 3rd, 1959. Holly, Valens, Richardson, and Peterson were killed almost instantly after takeoff because the aircraft crashes into a frozen cornfield five miles northwest of Mason City, where they left. The three musicians were ejected, suffered severe head and chest injuries, and died on impact. And honestly, the saddest part of this whole thing 
is his wife got the news via a TV report and his mom got it from the radio. Like, are you serious? His wife was sent into such hysterics. This is not confirmed. It's believed that she was pregnant at the time <gasps> and it sent her into a miscarriage because oh she had to find out God. on national television that her husband was dead. Oh, give a girl a warning. Like, yeah, that's why not didn't okay. the manager call? Well, the manager, manager, the police. Yeah, why did the police call be like, hey? Because he was so famous, it just as soon as the media Jeez. is garbage and just decided to break it without taking any consideration Holy of the cow. family. So his he ends up he has a funeral, his body is, you know, in at the city of Lubbock Cemetery in the eastern part of the city. His headstone carries the correct spelling of his surname, and above his gravestone is this huge carving of or on his gravestone is his carving of his Fender Stratocaster. His wife did not attend his funeral and has never visited the gravesite. Wow. And she says, because I was like, that's weird. In a way, I blame myself. I was not feeling well when he left. I was two weeks pregnant and wanted Buddy to stay with me, but he had scheduled that tour. It was the only time I wasn't with him on tour. And I blame myself because I know that if I'd gone along, Buddy would have never gotten on that airplane. Oh my God. That's crazy. So on that sad note, talk about the conspiracies of why the plane went down. I'm ready. So I really wanted these to be really wild. They're not. Uh, I read this whole like journalist article about how we want like the human condition is to we want it to be something crazy. Yeah. Because it makes it easier to accept. In all actuality, the pilot was not licensed to fly the way that he was flying. It was a snowstorm. You can't, you can't, even licensed pilots today don't, yeah, they you, won't go in a blizzard. You can't take off in a snowstorm. Yeah. But that did not stop the media at the time from coming up with some conspiracies. One is that Buddy shot the pilot in a murder-suicide attempt. Why? Because of his cash flow problem. There's no real good reason behind this one. Just, just he shot the pilot and it went down. For cash flow reasons. For, for cash so flow reasons. So he his friends because of cash flow. Yeah, that's no. that's not a good theory. Yeah. The other theory, there's only really two, is that the mob put a bomb in the plane to punish Buddy for refusing to pay his percentage of the royalties. Uh, of course, come to the mob. Blame the mob. It's the mob's fault. Yeah. Uh, so those are the only two really real conspiracies I could find. But there's also just some weird shit around planes and foreshadowing in the guys who died's lives. Okay. So there are several documented accounts that all three of them had some sort of plane crash premonition. <gasps> no. So this is this got weird. This was that I'm gonna post the link to this website because I roll up on this conspiracy site and it's literally just text. It's not coded. You know you're on like a conspiracy site when yeah. you didn't bother to code it. It's 1997. They just put it. They up. just slapped it up there. So the big bopper. Awake two weeks previously, had just served as a DJ for a discathon put on by a radio station for, for publicity. Where this sounds real stupid, we should never bring this back. They would have like a guest DJ, uh-huh. and the goal was to just stay awake as long as possible before giving into weariness. I mean, I guess it got weird at certain points because they would be funny and almost drunk. Yeah, it's not healthy. Yeah, so when he was doing this. 
He stayed awake for five days straight. Holy cow. And in the middle of it, because they put other DJs in there with him to like keep him talking and make yeah. sure that he's, you know, doing okay. He just like stops in the middle of the, the segment and just looks at the other DJ and said, do you think I'm going to die? And the other DJ was like, oh, you're just, you're just really tired. Like, you know, just played it off because I mean, he'd been awake for three days at this point. But after on the fourth day, he starts to hallucinate. And start saying stuff like, I visited the other side. It wasn't that bad. And then at the end of his fifth day, he has to be taken out of the station by ambulance because he's just so exhausted. Holy cow. So premonition number one, which was just death, not about plants. Yeah, just death. Premonition number two is the big one. Richie oh Valens. Okay. For the last like two years of his life. Yeah. So there's two years for the crash. He has been having recurring nightmares of crashing in a small plane. And pretty much for those two years, he refused to fly. Like, they don't really know why he got on this plane because he was petrified of flying. Oh, my gosh. Because two years prior, so he was probably like 18, 17. Yeah. He skipped school one day. Not skipped school. He was out of school one day to attend his grandfather's funeral. While they're driving to the funeral, they watch a plane literally explode in the sky and crash. So his family drives to the crash site because they're insane. Why? Guess where it crashed? In a cornfield? On his school's playground. Oh! Three kids died and 90 were injured. And he became convinced that if he had not gone to that funeral, he would have been dead. Because he would have been on that playground. Oh! And it was like, it was like, death was like, hey, you cheated me. So now he's the reason why the plane crashed. Probably. That's like, hey, knock, knock. You were supposed to, that was your time. Surprise, and you bitch. skipped it. Yeah. Oh, that creeps me out. Yeah, that was the one that creeped me out too. Ugh. Uh, Ugh. So he like, he was very well known that he would not get on a plane. And so people were very surprised that he got on there in the first place. And then before. Well, he flipped the coin and he, he won. He probably didn't yeah. want to win. I don't know. Why did it, was he just saying this coin toss? Like, I don't know. Uh, so before Richie Valens left on this tour, it's said that his mother actually had a premonition of him crashing in the snow and dying. Are you serious on a plane? It wasn't on a plane. It was just like a premonition of him dead in the snow, which is what happened. Holy cow. And then we get to Buddy. On his first date with Maria Elena later in life, Maria mentions that on that first date, Buddy actually proposed to her then and there. And when she made a joke and said, like, maybe we should get to know each other better, Buddy said, I haven't got the time. So they don't know if that was, if he just convinced he was going to die early because of his insane life of travel and overworking. Uh, I'm actually, I honestly, like, don't feel good. Like, I actually feel ill. Now that I'm hearing this out loud, I kind of feel weird. That's, like, how I felt whenever I did the... The Led Zeppelin yeah. I was reading last episode. It was like, you. it's something where you read the words, you're like, all right, whatever. But you say But when them. you say the words, yeah. then it, it hits you. So I already mentioned that Maria, that's the only time she didn't go on him with tour, go with him on tour. Yeah. Uh, and But before he left New York City to even go to Lubbock, both Buddy and Maria had premonitions that he would not come back from this tour. Are you serious? And then the one that is not proven anywhere is apparently Buddy had his tarot cards read 
before he went on this tour. Idiot. That's, that's, <laughs> that's mistake number one. Like, you never do that. And that psychic told him that he would die by plane. You see, why, why you open the doors you don't need open? Don't get your cards read. Don't do it before a national tour. But yeah, so what really, I mean, what really happened, the plane failed. Dude should not have been flying it. But, Ugh. I mean, you, you can't really discount the fact that Richie Valens watched a crane, a plane crash into his school playground. Dude, that's the one. I told you that was a doozy. That's the one, cause, oh, it was like he upset the the balance. Yep. Ah, ah. Okay. Uh, I so, love spooky season, don't you? So that was the end. Buddy was twenty two when he died, but. Dude was busy before he died. He yeah. was, I don't, I mean, he may have been on drugs. It was the 50s, so probably not. But he left behind dozens, if not hundreds, of unfinished recordings. There were solo transcriptions of new compositions he was working on. There's footage of informal jam sessions with other bandmates and tapes where he was demoing songs that he was writing for other artists. There's, There was so much stuff left after he died, and he only had a four-year career, right? 18, uh-huh. 19, 20, 21, five-year career, four and a uh-huh. half. His collection of like unreleased material was so extensive that Brunswick Records was able to release new music under his name for 10 more years. Wow. So he was building up his repertoire. Mm-hmm. One of which was the apartment tapes, but there's all kinds of other stuff. Uh, Encyclopedia Britannica says that Buddy Holly produced some of the most distinctive and influential work in rock music. Allmusic.com calls him the single most influential creative force in early rock and roll. And we'll get to why here in a little bit. Rolling Stone, he's number 13 on the list of 100 greatest artists. Uh I don't know who's number one. Songwriters Hall of Fame inducted Holly in 1986 because his contributions literally changed the face of rock and roll. And, like, if you listen to his his popular songs, they're okay. Like... They're, they wouldn't make a hit in today's world. They're very simple, like Peggy Sue, half the lyrics are Peggy Sue, I love you. Uh-huh. Like, they're not they're not great. But some of his, the way he recorded, he's the one that developed techniques of overdubbing and reverb, which are still used today. Yeah. It's, it's Buddy Holly. That's it. No one was doing that before him. Elvis wasn't doing it. Like, no one was doing it. Yeah. He was a genius in the recording studio. Which is why he wanted to produce his own stuff when he first got signed with Decca. Um, yeah, that makes sense. And then I could continue to list the amount of posthumous awards, honors, inductions that he's gotten. Go look at the Wikipedia page. Because let's talk about Buddy Holly's musical influence. Because this is insane. He has pretty much touched every major group mm-hmm. since he died. John Lennon and Paul McCartney saw Buddy Holly when he played at the London Palladium. The two had just recently met and just started playing music together. So they went back from that concert, studied all of Buddy Holly's records, learned his performance style, how he wrote, based their entire act around his persona. They were inspired by the Crickets to name their band The Beatles. Okay. I'm like getting chills reading this. Yeah. Um, 
the John Lennon's band, his solo band, the Quarrymen, covered that'll be the day in their very first recording session in 1958. The Beatles recorded a very close cover of Buddy Holly's Words of Love, which was released on a 1964 album. Lennon recorded a cover of Peggy Sue on his 1975 album, Rock and Roll. And on this day, Paul McCartney owns all the publishing rights to all of Buddy Holly's songs. He bought them all. Uh, Mick Jagger saw Buddy Holly perform in London during one of his two England tours. And he specifically remembers being touched by Buddy Holly performing Not Fade Away, a song that also inspired Keith Richards, who modeled his early guitar playing after Buddy Holly. Wow. The Rolling Stones also recorded a cover in 1964. Don McLean, you may know a little song called American Pie. Mm Mm-hmm. Released in 1971, it was inspired by Buddy Holly's death and the day of the really the day of the plane this crash. This the day that I die. Uh, the song oh. lyric calls that plot crash the day the music died, which is where the nickname of that plane crash comes from. Wow! And he he dedicated that entire album, which is called American Pie, I think, maybe whatever album that's on. He dedicated it to dedicated it to Buddy Holly. And he wrote, I guess, in the the track booklet or somewhere with that, he wrote, Buddy Holly would have the same stature musically whether he would have lived or died because of his accomplishments. By the time he was 22 years old, he recorded 50-something tracks, most of which he'd written himself. In my view and the view of many others, a hit. Buddy Holly and the Crickets were the template for all the rock and roll bands that followed. Elton John was influenced by Buddy Holly. Yeah, he was. At age 13, even though he did not require glasses, he started wearing glasses to imitate Buddy Holly. Aww. The Clash were influenced by Buddy Holly. They talk about him in the song Corner Soul. The Chirping Crickets was the first album that Eric Clapton ever bought in his entire life. He saw Holly that night at the London Palladium. All these musical yeah. greats were in that room at the London Palladium. Watching Buddy Holly that That's night. That's crazy, man. It's insane. In Eric Clapton's autobiography, he talks about that time that he saw Buddy Holly on stage with that Fender guitar and says, I thought I'd died and gone to heaven. It was like seeing an instrument from outer space. And I said to myself, That's the future I want for the rest of my life. Wow. In a 1978 interview, Bruce Springsteen says he plays Buddy Holly every night before he goes on to keep him honest. Huh. And the Grateful Dead performed a song, Not Fade. They covered Buddy Holly's Not Fade Away in most of their concerts. Yeah. So wow. that just shows some of the wide variety of musical influence that Buddy Holly has had. I'm getting goosebumps. Man. I know. I, this I like, is like, no, you, you kind of zone out here and you see the story of a young kid. From Lubbock, Texas. Who feels like he doesn't have a lot of time left. Yeah. And records 50 songs. 50 and then has this mysterious album no one knows what the hell was wrong with him and, and then he gets on a plane and dies. has premonitions that he's gonna die everyone does and he dies and then all of a sudden that whole thing births a revolution music. whoa yeah that's insane so i think a lot of time like the beatles get credited for like the birth of rock and roll it was buddy holly it was buddy holly they, it was buddy holly and elvis presley you were looking up to one of the two young mccartney and lennon were in in that's 
venue that night in and London. And let us not forget, we almost lost Waylon Jennings. Yes. I had no clue. Yeah, I didn't either until, like, Wikipedia just, like, glosses over it. I'm like, oh, we gotta, we gotta talk about Waylon Jennings here for a second. Yeah. He's important Do to this story. Do not go over that. Um, also, on top of the rock and roll influence that it has, uh, they made Buddy, a Buddy Holly story, which is the first jukebox musical. Mm-hmm. Um, which later inspires musicals such as We Will Rock You and Mamma Mia. These things would not exist without yeah. the Buddy Holly story, which is actually how I first learned a lot of this about Buddy Holly. A local theater troupe did it last summer. And like, I knew what happened. I knew Buddy was going to die. That show was so good. That I yeah. cried when Buddy died. Like, it's just, it gives you goosebumps to watch it. And the guy playing Buddy is he was fantastic he yeah. looks just like him and you know the weird story with that let's go back to the who yes when that came out we'll just kind of recite this so paul mccartney went to it and so did keith moon the movie the, the movie not the musical sorry you're talking about yeah, the musical. I'm musical but okay. there's a movie there is a movie i might as well just go into yeah it. but so the movie was released in like 1970 something i think 73 yeah i just got i didn't feel like talking about the movie but keith moon goes and sees this film and he takes too many pills and dies the next day in the same apartment that Cass Elliot died at the same age as Keith Moon. Yep. It is... All these rock deaths are so They're weird. really creepy and... They give you goosebumps. I don't like it. Yeah. But also, I forgot to write this down, but we mentioned in the Kansas episode about that Universal Backlot fire in 2008... That fire claimed all of the Buddy Holly originals. Oh, no. Yes. Those tapes were part of that fire. The apartment ones. All, no, just all of the originals. Them. Like the Decca originals. That's sad. That I mean, hurts. I believe at this point, because they, they eventually ran out of material, but I think at this point there are digital copies of all the masters, but the actual physical masters are gone. And you'll never get them back. No, because they burn That's up. Crazy. This is why you don't heat asphalt with a blowtorch. Idiot. <laughs> We're blaming you, nameless, universal backlot Employee. person. Yeah. So that is Buddy Holly. and That's wild. I... Well, I did I not know no. it was going to go that creepy. No, I honestly, I was like, after hearing Led Zeppelin, I was like, my episode's not that creepy. And then I started reading it. I was like, oh, no, shit. That's really creepy. Yeah. So happy Halloween, everybody. Hope the, you enjoyed spooky season. And these two have been a gift from us to you. And we're going to go real friendly next, too, because... <laughs> oh, God. I'm going to talk about the most friendliest artist I can think of, which I can't think of any at the moment. just talk about Weird Al. <laughs> <laughs> someone suggested... I palate cleanser after this, yeah? Someone suggested that we do a Weird Al episode. They're like, I don't know if he counts. And I was like, I don't care if he counts. We should do a Weird Al episode. <laughs> Maybe... We'll, we'll talk about it. Yeah. Um, let me pull up this. Are you going to tell what your drink is? Oh, yeah. My drink. Here, take this laptop. Yeah. My drink is by... Oh, it's stuck in my thing. Shit. Your laptop's fine. <laughs> <laughs> okay. My drink is by Graft, which I, the way it's written on this can, I did not know that was the brewery. It is a beautiful can. One of the most beautiful cans I've ever seen. It is called Salt and Sand Goes, Goze, I don't know how to pronounce this thing, Goes Margarita Cider. It says citrusy and tart. It is very tart. But it is from 
Beth Ann's homeland of New York in Newburgh, New York. That's where my dad was born. So it's from the Hudson homeland. Valley. Hudson, Hudson Valley. Valley sour cider. It is very sour. I don't like it, but I'm happy about it because it's from my yeah. my homeland. It's it was much better when it was cold an hour and a half ago. It's still good. It is very sour, I will say. Thank you for listening. I hope you have as many goosebumps as we do. If you don't, go find another creepy podcast. Plenty out there. Yeah. <laughs> you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. You also can leave us a review. Tell us what you thought of these spooky episodes. Maybe you liked them, maybe you didn't. Who knows? We want to hear your thoughts. Special thanks to Josh Tarpley for our intro riff and Lauren Page Photography for our cover art. Special thanks to Backline Coffee and Speaker Tree Records for giving us our record needs. Go pick up a Buddy Holly record, maybe. And then for our coffee needs. You can like us on Facebook or follow us on Instagram at She Will Rock You Podcast. We also are on Twitter now. And you can find us at She Will Rock, the letter U pod. You also can follow us individually at Beth Ann Tarpley. Or you can follow Leah at leahelizabeth.j. Other than that, don't do drugs and don't go on planes if you have a dream about it. And don't get your tarot cards read. Just don't do that. need you to test mics with me. Are we recording right now? Yeah. But you got to get closer well, to the mic. Got to get closer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want is, you like right here. Is that going to be a thing for Leah to be leaning over the table? She'll be fine. You know, when I was on a podcast back in my day, all we had was a microphone from your headphones on your iPod. And then we would record the Skype call. Do it all in one take. We're doing it live. <laughs> is this going to work for you? Yeah. I guess these are pretty good microphones. Amazon.com slash S-W-R-K. Swery. She will rock you. S-W-R-Y. Swery to me? You swear to me? Swery. Swery to me. She will rock you merch available at whateverthehell.com. What else are you guys going to plug soon? We'll probably get a... Our official drug sponsor, because we are a rock and roll podcast. So we're in talks with cocaine. Cocaine. Cocaine.com. We're, we're, we're also got an offer from DMT. We're just kind of, we're, we're Co- weighing it out. Cocaine.gov. Yeah. You can get it through, you get regulated. Of course, cannabis is just, it's too popular of an industry. So we're, we're soon, trying to really help the indie guys there out. Will, there will be an online cannabis thing. You guys could get a, a referral code. <laughs>